investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, investors, to episode 31 of the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kastoring. Today is Friday, the 13th of September. So if anyone's superstitious out there, uh, hopefully don't suffer any bad luck. I know in the markets we had a pretty calm day today, but quite the week, have a lot going on, some interesting topics to discuss on the podcast this week off the top. There is activist hedge fund Elliott Management. So they targeted a conglomerate AT&T with a new activist campaign. We're going to chat about what Elliott wants here and the activist playbook. Business legend T. Boone Pickens, he passed away at 91 years of age. We're going to chat about what made him so notable. Big news in the M&A space with the Hong Kong Stock Exchange going hostile for the London Stock Exchange. Why is this potential deal so interesting? And some macro stuff. We had uh, big news out of the ECB as they cut rates further into negative territory and restarted quantitative easing. Why did they do it? Lastly, we're going to talk about uh, factor performance for the month of August. Feared activist hedge fund Elliott Management, they disclosed a 32 billion dollar stake in media conglomerate AT&T this week. What they did is they came out fast and criticized the company's strategy and leadership. Now this campaign is notable because Elliott, their stake is over $3 billion. However, AT&T's market cap is nearly $300 billion. So Elliott is coming out here swinging with a stake of only about 1% which typically uh, an activist will take a stake of between 5 to 10%, such that they have pretty significant control or influence over a company. So this campaign off the top is just notable due to such a small portion of the company. We're going to get into specifically some of the criticisms that Elliot has with respect to AT&T. Number one is just AT&T's track record of M&A. Some of their mergers or their acquisitions have been questionable. And in addition to that, they question management as well. Basically, Elliot is urging AT&T to end its acquisition spree and focus on operational improvements. They had negative things to say about AT&T's recent acquisition of Time Warner, which was an $85 billion deal, and DirecTV, which was nearly a $50 billion deal. Elliott believes following its playbook would boost the stock nearly 60% by 2021. So that would be a pretty exceptional shareholder return if this is true. I mean, this is all highly speculative. But Elliott's playbook behind this activist play on AT&T is they should divest certain businesses, they should cut $5 billion of costs, and they should cease their M&A spree. So this is basically most of the initiatives in the standard activist playbook being, you know, margin expansion through cost cutting. That's a big one. Debt pay down, a big one that activists really like are share repurchases. You reduce the float of shares, which boosts earnings per share. So you have earnings per share growth and you don't even need revenue growth to attain that. But the combination of margin expansion through cost cuts 
and share of purchases. This is like a double whammy, a double multiplication on earnings per share growth, which will ultimately you know, grow the share of price. Their theory is that with these changes, uh, they'll drive nearly 10% annual earnings per share growth. That is one method to get to that 60% return over the next two years. The other is they believe if investors start to see this earnings per share growth that the market will ascribe a higher multiple, a much higher multiple on AT&T stock, meaning investors are willing to pay more for a set amount of earnings per share. They believe that with its earnings per share growth and combined with AT&T's attractive dividend yield, that AT&T can immediately become a low to mid double digit value compounder. Investors on the news are pretty happy with it. I mean, stock went up 1.5% and to drive a stock that's nearly $300 billion in market cap higher, that's a, a pretty impressive feat, but I mean, it is early days on this activist campaign. And you can tell AT&T is likely already doing some of these activities that Elliot wants them to do. But ultimately, it's uh, really, you know, they, I admire their chutzpah behind this activist campaign to go over such a massive target is certainly new to them. What are your thoughts on this really interesting and uh, stunning activist campaign that really has no lack of confidence from Elliot? Absolutely. And Elliot is known for their confidence in their activist campaigns, as we spoke about them last week. But in terms of just in terms of the capital allocation strategy that they want the company to follow. Now, it revolves around a few things. Number one is their dividend growth. So continuing to be a dividend grower, appeasing the market from that standpoint. But the rest of it is the allocation of the post-dividend free cash flow amount, which they're proposing to be a 50-50 split to buybacks and debt repayment, as well as they would also recommend the sale of DirecTV and some of the Mexican wireless assets. But with regards to that 50-50 split of the post-dividend free cash flow, they already are doing both of those things. They already are paying back debt and they already are buying back shares. Now, what this would be is more of like a a strategy to codify that to be 50-50, mm. um, where it would just give management less discretion in terms of you know whether they pay back debt or share do share buybacks at any point in time, giving the market more of a making it easier for analysts to model. And with regards to as well the the. M&A strategy, it is interesting that, and they brought up a couple of case studies, the aforementioned DirecTV deal, um, which they didn't speak very highly of, as well as the failed T-Mobile deal, which Julian, you're very familiar with, but just for our listeners, this is a good example of a failed acquisition where they ended up paying in this deal a $4 billion break fee on a deal that had an, a value of I believe 39 billion. Right. So what happened there were regulators blocked the deal on antitrust grounds and T-Mobile had negotiated into the merger contract that they would be paid a break fee or a reverse break fee upon that. And that reverse break fee also included a vast array of spectrum 
in addition to a ton of cash, billions of dollars, which really set T-Mobile up for success. And they've really just crushed it in the mobile space since then. And, and Elliot, that was one of the main or one of the main points they criticized is, look, you gave a competitor all this firepower. That was a really idiotic move. And, you know, it certainly turned out to be the case. Absolutely. And a break fee that's 10% of deal value is quite a high break fee in and of itself. But then you mentioned the spectrum as well as a seven year roaming deal where the, this break fee was significantly more valuable than $4 billion. And just for context, at that point in time, uh, T-Mobile, that was for a deal of $40 billion. Right now, their enterprise value is $110 billion. So you've seen massive growth from T-Mobile, which is now the third competitor. Really? Yeah. So really what you're saying is that AT&T, Elliot is saying that there's a track record of strategic blunders on their acquisitions that they've done over the past. There was the blunder on T-Mobile where the deal broke and they're, you know, stuck uh, compensating a competitor very, very well. And then they did the direct TV deal, 50 billion and direct TV, that satellite TV and AT&T probably couldn't have been worse with the timing. They basically top ticked the satellite TV market. And ever since they closed the deal, they've just faced a massive decline in subscribers as viewers cut the cord and go into streaming. And then on the recent Time Warner deal, uh, Elliot's criticism was that, look, You've owned this for over a year already and you don't have a coherent plan. The other thing is, and the main, the main criticism that Elliot ultimately has on AT&T is they're saying, look, you've become this conglomerate. You've diversified away from your best business, which is the mobile the mobile phone business, you need to stop trying to become a conglomerate because that's really gone out of fashion basically 30 years ago. You need to become more like Verizon, focus on your strengths, divest all these businesses that you acquired solely for diversification purposes, but they really aren't adding any value. In fact, they're creating a conglomerate discount in which investors really don't like in this market. Absolutely. And then in ter the last thing I would mention that in terms of market reaction, debt investors have reacted with a little bit of skepticism to the Elliott note. Um, and their main concern is just that AT&T will be pressured by Elliott to pursue a buyback heavy capital alloc allocation strategy that would prioritize the buybacks over the re repayment of debt. And as a creditor, they're not really a fan of that. Um, but that is something to monitor is how the debt investors do continue to analyze the situation here. Yeah, typically that's what happens. And an, an activist comes in on the equity side, pushes for more leverage, more debt to fund buybacks. Obviously, that will make bondholders nervous and you'll see the bond prices trade down. Some sad news with the passing of business legend T. Boone Pickens. Now, T. Boone, he's worn many hats in his lifetime, first as an oil, oil wildcatter, then a corporate raider, then a hedge fund manager and billionaire philanthropist. So he died at 91 years old. And what, where he's notable in the financial space is he was really a pioneer of the hostile takeover in the 70s and 80s. And he was known as a corporate raider. In the 1980s, he even made the cover of Time magazine. 
uh, just due to all his pretty rabid deal making in the 1980s. Other thing that's hugely notable is he was very, very generous philanthropist. He donated over a billion dollars uh, to different uh, organizations over the years. And we just wanted to chat about some of his accomplishments and you know what his uh, what his career was like. He initially started at Phillips Petroleum after graduating from university, and only three years or two to three years later, he founded his own oil company, twenty five hundred bucks and a hundred thousand dollars in borrowed money, which really was characteristic of his whole life. Was he was a tremendous risk taker. He had just a you know a huge appetite for risk which is you know, i think uh his key to success over life so he founded this company uh initially just to drill wildcat wells which is obviously super super risky just drilling wildcatters with borrowed money but that was a successful strategy in texas uh, his this company later became known as mesa petroleum which became one of the largest independent oil producers in the u.s and five years after forming mesa he launched his first hostile takeover for an oil company called Hugaton Production. And this is what I thought was most interesting. And it was actually really innovative back then is that he saw a big disconnect between the value of the company's oil reserves and its stock price. And an interesting quote from Boone here, he said, at the time, it has been cheaper, become cheaper to look for oil on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange than in the ground, which, you know, really, gives you a sense of how innovative of a thinker he was and what he was indicating there is that you know instead of drilling oil wells trying to find new oil you can just take over a company get all their oil assets for much cheaper than it would be to do that organically and he really went on to monetize uh, this hostile takeover strategy for example he made 30 million bucks personally by taking a five percent stake in a firm called cities service and launching a hostile bid for it he got to cash out when they actually got uh, a white knight through occidental to take over city service at a much higher price uh, he made similar but failed attempts with phillips petroleum unical and gulf oil uh, he was also criticized for what's what was known as green mail where an activist would take a stake in a company and the management would utilize shareholder funds to buy them out at a large premium to the share price and that was really frowned upon because if you're a, you know, a long-term investor in a company and they're green mailing off an activist, then you're left with a much more weakened company with significantly less cash in the treasury. So that practice was ultimately banned, which is why we don't see any green mail anymore. It really just isn't good for minority shareholders. They're the ones left holding the bag. <laughs> yeah, no, certainly. But he was really, really big for uh, shareholder value. So he founded the United Shareholders Association in 1986 to pressure corporate leaders to give the companies back to the owners, which are the shareholders. Ultimately, he was a larger-than-life personality who was known for endless confidence and just a tremendous tolerance for risk. Absolutely. And so in terms of his tolerance for risk, that is a really good display of that is that when, when he was pushed out of his uh, oil company, Mesa Petroleum, in the 1990s, he then founded his energy hedge fund where he really just focused on playing macro commodities in terms of nat gas and oil futures. And what was crazy about his hedge fund was, number one, the volatility 
um, as you had mentioned, his his confidence and his ability to take risk. And I believe this was in the early 2000s where his fund was down 90%. There was some anecdotes about, you know, only a couple investors being left in the fund that hadn't redeemed. And then, you know, he went on to, he proceeded to go up, you know, either 100x or 1,000x um, from those points where it was just an unreal run that he went on um, that was based on, obviously, he did take into account his own analysis, but it was, it was very speculative. You did mention some of his green mailing tactics. Uh, which were looked upon very negatively in the 80s. He was also, it's believed that it's between him and Carl Icahn, who the Gordon Gecko character from right. Wolf of Wall Street is is based upon. And speaking of Carl Icahn, um, in the past week, this is one of the few fellow investors that Carl Icahn actually speaks favorably about. Right. Um, he actually had really kind words to say about him, despite them being on the opposite ends of many uh, leverage buyout deals that they're competing over back in, in the 80s. The other thing that I'd like to mention is that despite you know his, his passing away at, at the age of 91, even in his 80s, he was quite active on, on social media and it, he is attributed to one of the funniest tweets I've ever seen. He had a little run-in with the rapper Drake who had tweeted out, this was in May 2012, and Drake had tweeted out, the Canadian rapper Drake, tweeted out, the first million is the hardest, to which T. Boone Pickens replied, the first billion is a hell of a lot harder, which <laughs> is, you know, really putting somebody in their place for, uh, you know, bragging about making a million dollars when you have a legitimate billionaire. Yeah, T. Boone stunting on Drake was perhaps the greatest tweet of all time, and the first Billion being the hardest, that's uh, one of his books, which is, happens to be a personal favorite of mine. And so it's sad to see such a, a larger-than-life character pass away. But, I mean, we have such a... He was, uh, provided such a rich contribution to not only the energy industry, but the financial industry as well. And so he'll certainly go down in the Hall of Fame. Really interesting hostile takeover bid from the Hong Kong Stock Exchange who made a bold play for the London Stock Exchange. So what happened was uh, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, the HKS or HKEX, announced a 39 billion unsolicited offer to acquire its London-based competitor. And they offered a consideration at about 83 pounds per share, which equates to about a 23% premium over London Stock Exchange unaffected price. Now this deal, what one of the aspects that makes it so interesting is it would be contingent on the LSE dropping its previously announced friendly $27 billion acquisition acquisition of financial data provider Refinitiv. Now, we spoke about this on a podcast last month, how uh, LSE shareholders really loved this Refinitiv deal. Number one, it was just a massive deal, nearly $30 billion, but it was highly accretive, and LSE shares rallied significantly off that acquisition, which was notable in itself, because one of the things that we've been seeing uh, in this environment were the acquirer's stock price dropping precipitously on the announcement of large deals. But LSC shareholders really like the Refinitiv deal. And this Hong Kong uh, hostile takeover proposal is contingent on LSE dropping that Refinitiv deal. So number one, I don't know how keen shareholders will be on that. 
The strategic rationale behind HKEX's hostile proposal, their merger combination, that the combination would create like a global market juggernaut with tons of synergies. You'd have trading between Hong Kong and London 18 hours a day. It would be the second largest exchange operator globally next to the CME. However, we don't see this deal of really having any sort of probability of success. Number one, it was quickly rejected by LSE's directors. And number two, I mean, this would face intense, not only regulatory scrutiny, but political scrutiny as well. Got a quote from the LSE in a letter sent to the HKEX, they stated, there's no doubt that your unusual board structure and your leadership with the Hong Kong government will complicate matters. Accordingly, your assertion that implementation of a transaction would be swift and certain is simply not credible. So this HKEX bid comes amid a deepening political crisis in Hong Kong, where the government's grappling with months of protests that have turned increasingly violent as many of the citizens are really wary about China and Beijing's influence on uh, Hong Kong. Not just that, but with respect to the corporate governance of the HKEX. Now, the largest and controlling shareholder is the Hong Kong government, which is ultimately controlled by Beijing. The HKEX lists vast amount of Chinese state-owned enterprises on, it, on its exchange. In addition, their board of directors has 13 board members who were all directly or indirectly appointed by the Hong Kong government. So they're effectively nearly a state-owned entity you know, controlled effectively by Beijing, which really is not palatable in the current environment. But nonetheless, I mean, Hong Kong did ex acquire the London Metal Exchange seven years ago, which was a much smaller deal, much less of a political issue. But this massive $39 billion of really, you know, a storied stock exchange that has been around for hundreds of years and has tremendous political implications, it just seems like quite the, the non-starter because ultimately regulators are going to view this as a Chinese takeover. Basically, like... Britain would have to cede uh, an institution that has been around since 1571, at least it can trace its roots back over 500 years, uh, at a time when London's centuries-long status as a leading financial capital is really in doubt due to the ongoing consternations with Brexit and the implications uh, that a Brexit would bring. Not just that, but I mean, regulatory scrutiny would not only be lim limited to London because LSE also owns the uh, Italian stock exchange. So they'd really be facing pushback throughout Europe. I got some interesting background on the LSE. And what makes it so interesting, it has been a target of perhaps the most uh, takeover proposals that I've ever seen. Over the past 20 years, uh, competitor Deutsche Börse has tried to take them over three times. Uh, first in 2000, then 2005, then their last try in 2017 was struck down by the regulators. If you uh, Canadians would remember, back in 2011, LSE made a play for the Toronto Stock Exchange, which ultimately failed because a bunch of Canadian banks got together and, in fact, uh, gave a superior proposal to the Toronto Stock Exchange. Not only that, but you see in these exchange deals, there's always political pushback uh, from the nation in which their stock exchange is getting uh, acquired. LSE also rejected a bid from NASDAQ uh, in 2006. In addition to the Stockholm Stock Exchange, 
uh, in 2000. So a really storied history, not just of uh, trading for 500 years, but uh, takeover attempts over the past 20. What are your thoughts on this really interesting, but what I think to be ultimately an unsuccessful hostile takeover attempt? I would agree with your, your thoughts on it being unlikely to be successful. Um, but with that being said, I do understand the rationale for the Hong Kong, Hong Kong exchange to acquire the LSE, as this would reduce their dependence on Chinese company listings, as currently they represent 78% of their equity listings since 1998. But where I don't understand the strategic rationale would be from the LSE standpoint. Now you had mentioned uh, the Refinitiv deal, and what was interesting was when we discussed the LSE Refinitiv deal, is their strategic rationale was that it would take them away from as much exposure to trading as well as the listing revenue that exchanges have typically relied upon and place them more in the position where they would still have that revenue. But what was really driving the business model was the data and analytics being provided and really being an all-in-one platform. Thinking of, say, Bloomberg, something like that, where if you did drop that deal now and did a deal with the Hong Kong exchange, it would just be more of the status quo where your key revenue sources are the listings and the trading revenue where I really don't think that fits into how the industry is moving in the long term. Right, because uh, trading revenue is really, there's not a lot of growth in that. It's a highly commoditized business. There's a ton of competition there. Meanwhile, data, data is obviously very important and some view it as the new oil where it's highly valuable and they have pricing power behind that. Absolutely, pricing power, so more of an offensive move as to a deal with the Hong Kong exchange would really just be a defensive move in a commoditized industry where your only goal is to cut costs and compete on that side. Right. Nonetheless, British takeover rules, they say that the Hong Kong exchange now has 28 days to either make a firm acquisition offer or walk away. Uh, either way, shareholders liking it, you look at the long-term stock chart of LSE, it's pretty tremendous up and to the right. But off this news, LSE stock was up 6.6% on the news, so shareholders certainly like it. Uh, Hong Kong Stock Exchange shareholders not digging it too much, their stock down 3%. And those moves are, are kind of strange given how low a probability we think this has of happening so ultimately we could see uh, hong kong come back with a higher bid but i think ultimately it'll be futile and this will ultimately be uh, kind of a waste of time because i don't see it being successful wanted to touch on a little bit of macro here as the european central bank cut its benchmark interest rate by 10 basis points putting it further into negative territory at negative 50 basis points or negative half a percent. In addition, they relaunched their bond buying program, all in a bid to stimulate Europe's sputtering economy. So what they what they did here is they pledged to buy 20 billion euros of Eurozone debt per month in this new quantitative easing program, also known as QE. And they indicated that this new QE program is expected to run as long as 
necessary so that ECB and President Mario Draghi really uh, coming up with the bazooka here. And this is really their largest dose of monetary stimulus in three and a half years. And it's really a bold finale for their departing President Draghi because he will be, um, you know, leaving his position shortly. Nonetheless, there was some controversy here. Some ECB officials really divided on the relaunch a reviving of quantitative easing. Number one, like my criticism is that negative interest rates and QE really hasn't been effective in Europe. You can tell by the economic figures, you can tell by the stock price or the stock market. I mean, look at the stock prices of their banks. They're just getting crushed here by the, by the negative rates and it's really not spurring much economic activity at all, not helping out inflation. Inflation is still below target. But ultimately, it's, it's like a geographic divide in uh, the European Union. So the stimulus program, it's contentious in parts of Northern Europe due to concerns that it subsidizes the free spending governments in the south of the region. So it's basically uh, Germany, which is very uh, fiscally conservative, I'd say. They don't want to subsidize or support uh, you know, the freewheeling ways of some of the Mediterranean nations, whether it be Italy, uh, Portugal, Spain, uh, those uh, countries with basically massive deficits. The other thing that I wanted to chat about um, the ECB's new easing measures is this. The, their QE really faces challenges because they have a self-implemented buying limit of one-third of each government's debt. So some speculate that uh, there's only so much debt out there uh, to support 9 to 12 months of this 12, 20 billion euro per month buying unless they change that limit but the ecb is hesitant to do that because they don't vote in control if a country were to default which opens up a whole new quagmire of potential problems for the central bank uh, nonetheless uh, obviously interesting comments from trump because as you know he very much enjoys criticizing the federal reserve and chairman uh, fed chairman jay powell he came out with a tweet uh, accusing the ecb of trying to weaken the euro and uh, basically bashing the fed for not matching the decline in rates saying that it's not fair how Europe can pay negative rates. Meanwhile, the U.S. pays uh, actual interest on its debt. But I mean, it, it leaves you scratching your head here. Will QE ultimately have any positive effect? To me, it seems like it's just pushing on a string here. What are your thoughts? I would, I would very much agree with that. And with regards to your comments on Draghi leaving office soon and the self-imposed limits where they have basically nine to 12 months of runway uh, before they converge on that limit, is it's effectively him kicking the can down the road. So he's implemented something that the next governor will have to uh, they'll have to make changes to that. So whether they increase that limit or start buying different securities, um, it will be really interesting. It, it puts the new governor in a, a very interesting position once they once they come in, uh, as well as you'd mentioned Trump, where he had the uh, you know real, the ability to both praise and critique the move by the ECB. Um, you know his comments about currency manipulation are valid. It will devalue the euro. 
uh, against the dollar because of the lower interest rates. Um, whether or not that's this that that isn't their stated goal is to devalue the currency, but it is a very happy after effect um, for the uh, for the for Europe in general. Yeah, certainly that makes sense as we've seen. Uh, over the past number of one- months, we've seen China utilize the tool of devaluing its currency to cushion any sort of negative economic impacts and try to spur growth by having a weakening currency. And, you know, clearly, although it's not a stated goal, and they, in fact, came out with a statement to, you know, against that they were looking to devalue the euro. But uh, ultimately, I think that could be part of their plan is to spur growth through a weaker currency. Absolutely. And just with regards to the time frame, how they didn't give any sort of time frame for how long this will last. Uh, they, the only thing that they did mention is that it would end shortly before the bank started raising interest rates. And with that, they also promised not to increase interest rates until their inflation converges to their 2% target. So very loose terms in terms of how long it will last. Right, there you have it. QE to infinity put out a blog post this week entitled, It's a Momentum World and You're Just Living in It. Wanted to do a quick discussion of August factor performance. Now we focus on the factors of value, quality, price momentum, operating momentum, and trend. And what we've seen thus far up until the end of August was really value and quality just struggling. Uh, You know, cheap stocks not doing well, highly uh, overvalued stocks doing well, and then high quality stocks not doing all that well either. And where you've seen strength is stocks with price momentum, i.e. shares that have been going up, continue to go up, or stocks with operating momentum, uh, companies beating expectations, etc. And then companies with a really good share price trend, those uh, have been doing very, very well up until August. But uh, in the future, especially this month, uh, and you'll have to tune in to the subsequent podcast next week as we discuss a complete reversal of this in September, which has been super interesting news, some claiming it as a quant quake or just an equity earthquake because you had massive moves uh, in factor performance this week which we would like to touch on next week and perhaps a blog post too. So, so keep your eyes open for that one. And that's it for episode 31 of the Absolute Return podcast. I hope your week goes well. We will chat with you soon. If you want to check out more podcasts, feel free to go to absolutereturnpodcast.com. Leave us a review if you'd like, and we will chat with you soon. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast, Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.